I didn't hear you coming in. The podcast I requested, have you recorded it yet? It is more dangerous than you think. Yes, I, uh, no, podcasting. Uh, yeah, you like how I did that <laughs> Keanu accent instead of trying to do Keanu trying a British accent accent? Anyway. Should have just been, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I, I can't right. make fun of Keanu. Keanu jokes out like of the, the way, best. done, we did it. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron hey. and me, the cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fierce phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. So as you can tell by our very, very clever intro that we always have, uh, we are doing 1992's fucking wild, awesome as well, Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is the first time you saw it, right? Yes, first time I saw it. Hell yeah, in this movie, like, the fucking best. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. But before we get to that, this is a special episode because we have a new guest. We would like to welcome to the show Elizabeth Piper S. Actress, producer, writer. You've worn quite a few hats, actually, like in terms of industry experience. Saw on your IMDb. I peeped it before you came on. You've done a lot of special effects work, makeup work. You even have worked on a uh, Netflix Marvel show, specifically Punisher. The big thing in the last couple of years that you've been a part of is what looks like a COVID passion project called The Dark Offerings, a horror movie that was shot entirely on like Skype or whatever. And it was done as a COVID horror movie, which was really good. And it's actually on Amazon Prime. So Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am Elizabeth Piper S. Yes, I am an actor, writer, producer, special effects designer. We'll see what else I can throw on that list (laughs) in the future. We always love having industry people on. They usually are just as big of fans and nerds as anyone else would be of genre stuff, horror specifically. Mm -hmm. But you tend to have a different view that we normally don't see or talk about on the show, which is always fun. And the fact that you wanted to come on and talk about this movie is exciting to me. But yeah, like what kind of got you into working in the industry and what is it about horror, the genre itself, that is so appealing to you? Because I saw that not only are you the lead in the Dark Offerings, but you co-wrote it i think you're a producer on there you have producer credit as well so like what is it about horror that really like kind of captures your interest so growing up in michigan there wasn't much to do besides either going outside and playing in the dirt or watching movies (laughs) Uh, so i watched a ton of movies uh especially you know having an older brother and sister i got to watch a lot of 80s movies especially a bunch of action horror romance comedy that kind of all congealed itself into my type of movie which one of them that has all of it combined is fright night which is one of my all favorites. Oh yeah. Because we covered Fright Night a while back. We have a guest named Kelly who comes on quite a lot. That's his absolute favorite, but I'm learning more and more as we get into this community. Like Aaron's part of this community. He always has been. I'm the one who's kind of like slowly over the years been getting into the horror community. Mm-hmm. Fright Night is a lot of people's when they think of horror, that's the movie mm-hmm. to them. It's true. It's considered a B horror movie because it has every type of movie genre crammed into it. 
which is what really got me into in general is first and foremost, the comedy and fun aspect of it all. And then came the scares and getting scared is always I thought was pretty fun. I loved Halloween growing up. So anything spooky, I really gravitated towards, especially any type of taboo subject. So when Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, I was way too young for it, was not (laughs) allowed to see it until a little bit later on, I would catch like little peaks of the movie. (laughs) I wasn't supposed to, you know, of course, anything I saw, I'm just like, oh, wow, that's awesome. So when I finally got to see it, I fell in love with it even more. So hell yeah, you're also in Sam Raimi's backyard. Yes. Michigan is definitely the home of the evil dead. Yeah, also a great place to be. Well, we have a huge variety of horror movies that a lot of states don't even get to see. I mean, going to Family Video or Blockbuster, you know, as a kid, we'd have such a huge variety of horror movies that I never see anywhere else, especially in New York. So yeah, growing up, going to the movie store is like, do you want the horror movie or the horror movie? Yeah. Or, oh, there's a comedy over there. (laughs) So New York is where you're currently operating out of at the moment? New York is where I am now. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Let's kind of go into the latest project, The Dark Offerings. It's not going to stop. It's going to keep coming. And then, once it gets me, it's coming after you. Yo, wait, did she just, did she just text me my own name? Yep, did the exact same for me, too. <laughs> this can't be happening. This can't be happening. You have no choice, Sophia. You have to do this. Man, where you been? Is this Michael? No, no. Jacob. Fortunately, the demon has already attached itself to its offerings. There's really not much more we can do at this point. You have got to do it now or we all die! These people are not your friends! Stay with each other. You are in grave danger. Which again is on Amazon Prime. It was only a dollar when I rented it the other day. Yep. It's an easy watch. It's an hour and a half, just about. Watch it in one sitting. Had a lot of fun with it. It felt like a passion project. And I mean this endearingly, like in the way of people who are horror genre fans really cutting their teeth for the first time on like a feature length film. Like, you know, we always talk about all these directors who cut their teeth on early horror films. Like Peter Jackson's the big example, obviously, but there's a lot of them that do this. And this kind of felt like just a passion project that came up at a very bad time in society in general with with everything going on with COVID. And so instead of that seeming to hinder y'all's film, you kind of dove right into that. And I I looked up two pieces of trivia. Again, this is off IMDb and Elizabeth, correct me if I'm wrong, but the two pieces of trivia that I I thought were really cool are the film was shot entirely in chronological order, Mm -hmm. which is not usually a thing. And it was actually the first feature length horror film to be shot entirely during quarantine and abiding by all the social distancing guidelines. As far as we know, yes. That's really cool. Yes, it was the the first feature-length film that was shot during quarantine. So I had COVID March 
of 2020. Ooh, so yeah, like right away. Yeah, it was right at the worst of it when everything shut down. So once I recovered, I realized there were a lot of things I still wanted to do with my life and writing a film was definitely one of them and making movies so that's kind of how it started we thought of an idea of doing a demon movie the other writers said you know let's just write a demon short and shoot it outside and I said no let's do a feature film so we got tons of people that we knew got them all together and made this movie and it it was a passion project because as creatives we soak up everything around us in terms of what's going on in the world and this movie that we made you know I put a lot of what I was seeing in the world yeah in terms of the characters all the different characters in the film are things that I would see like on social media and just people going back and forth and you know not being the nicest to each other you know and then people being absolute sweethearts yeah a lot of that I really threw into the film emotionally I think it was an outlet for all of us to really just let loose (laughs) yeah yeah the timing of this is actually really impeccable because we just came off of our summer series which was dead boy summer where it was focused mostly on the three first zombie romero movies and then we had companion movies to each one of those zombie movies so we did you know night of the living dead dawn of the dead and day of the dead and then three movies to go with that but the two things that i caught that were like interesting with you being on our show is that song you used in the end credits and i forget the name of the artist but i added that song to our playlist on spotify And I downloaded her album because I am a sucker for horror punk. That was just perfect. She's the best. Jessa Lantern. That's it. Yes. Yeah. And I was digging the song. So I like kind of sat through the credits and was just reading everything. Mm -hmm. And you guys have a shout out to like George Romero just being like, you know, thank you for inspiring us. Yeah. I told Derek too, it was just weird serendipity looking at the credits for Dark Offerings and seeing like, oh, wait. Terry Alexander was on this with y'all. Cool. <laughs> that works. So yeah, there were some neat connections. Yeah. Yeah. He was actually in a short film and I got to act with him in that one too. He's a great, great guy. I have to hand it to you guys. So there were a lot of references in the Dark Offerings. Not all of them horror either, which I appreciated, oh, I but I loved that he was Mantis Toboggan from <laughs> It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yep. I also really enjoyed the bit part that Felissa Rose had. Yeah. We'd done a, a sleepaway camp commentary episode i really appreciated that she was you know like the quote-unquote expert and the demon just says nah fuck that before she could even say anything which is something you don't normally see it was kind of like inverting that trope a little bit but i i really enjoyed how you guys wore your horror influences on your sleeves because it felt very much like taking the idea of like behind the ring and it follows even yeah. more modern horror and kind of blending that together because even unfriended came out before covid right aaron yes it's weird because we were basically around the same time as them. That's why I say in America, because I started writing it yeah. in April, I believe. So it's one of those things that two people have the same idea around the same time. <laughs> oh, Derek, you're talking about host. Oh, host. Yeah. Host is what you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Host is like I'm getting a few years back. Yeah. I feel like the dark offerings host and unfriended are this new subgenre we're seeing in horror, right? Where it's the Skype horror or 
you know, the online meeting type horror. Some of it was even like unfriended, I guess, was prior to the pandemic. But specifically, you guys really embrace that because like Aaron and I have brought up other movies and recommendations and stuff that we call COVID movies, but they still take place. Like, I think the most recent one, Aaron, that you brought up was Men, how that felt like a COVID movie, but that's only because the cast was so small, but it wasn't like so much. It wasn't about COVID. Yes, it wasn't like set in the framework of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the Dark Offerings really, again, does embrace that, which I really appreciated. Well, that's something a lot of people don't know, but the film industry completely shut down in March of 2020. It didn't really open back up until October of 2020. So that whole span, everything was shut down. That was a union film. And there were certain ones that were able to still shoot. I think in like New Zealand, they were still shooting a couple of other places, but a lot of stuff just got completely shut down. So a lot of indie films started shooting more. So a lot of that, especially for later on when film festivals started back up again, you saw a lot more indie stuff going on. Yeah, Yeah, that's part of the reason why Ty West actually went to New Zealand to shoot X and now the prequel movie Pearl. Uh, It was just one of those places where they could go and go ahead and get it done. They still had to jump through certain hoops. It was literally, okay, we got to fly across the entire world to go make this movie because we got to make it right now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, just to blow a little bit more smoke about the Dark Offerings, because I had a good time watching it. I really enjoyed that you never got into the origins of what this is. It just was. Anytime anyone tried to, it got cut off. You just kind of (laughs) skim the surface of just, it's an ancient demon. It's been here before Christianity. Uh, you're fucked it's a fun trope sometimes it's fun but we sometimes kind of roll our eyes at the expert scene where like the movie pauses and basically shows you like a powerpoint and the dark offerings doesn't do that because every time you would get a demonologist expert he'd be explaining things and then the demon would fuck with him be like i'm out every time that happened it got a laugh from me because i'm assuming it was again being a passion project it was a lower budget the gore effects were actually a lot of fun some of the deaths pretty solid the ear everything yeah yeah like i loved all that and and then just every character kind of embracing a different horror stereotype in a way and just really diving into that. It was fun and just kind of seeing a group of friends tear each other apart and it's not even necessarily the demon causing it. It was very cleverly done, I thought. So I really had a blast watching this. My daughter napped and the whole time she was napping, I watched it in one sitting. So oh. it was like a perfect afternoon horror movie for me. Perfect. But uh, before we move on, because it's on Amazon Prime, can our listeners see it anywhere else or are there socials for the movie or? Right now it's on uh, Amazon Prime. You can also check out The Dark Offerings Twitter, just at The Dark Offerings. Perfect. I post quite a bit of stuff on Elizabeth Piper S on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok. Nice. Those. <laughs> it was hard to shoot, and it was also a lot of fun. Yeah. And it was completely low budget. In terms of effects stuff, I could really only use what was in my kitchen at the time. And when <laughs> I say kitchen, I mean my whole special effects unit that I have yeah. nice. because all the clothes were basically shut down so I couldn't get certain things that I needed so it was basically what can I create here yeah and honestly there was a lot of camera effects that kind of helped cover a lot of that too and the camera effects actually lended to a couple jump scares for me Good. yeah this movie actually jump scared me a handful of times so even for cowards it's not necessarily the most faint of heart it's a lot of fun but yeah I, I loved the deaths they were fantastic but yeah moving on because we got a lot to talk about um 
Um, we're going to move on to our recommendations section of the podcast in which we talk about other movies, TV shows, books, video games, comics, anything horror related. We usually have guests go first, Elizabeth. So uh, have you been getting into any horror related content lately that you want to discuss? My biggest one that has been sticking in my mind, of course, is Stranger Things. Okay, nice. <laughs> that one specifically in terms of horror, I just thought it was a really great season, especially with the song that keeps playing on the radio nonstop. <laughs> the Kate Bush song? Yeah, the Kate Bush. Yeah. yeah, it was just a really great season. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I need to get caught up. I watched the third season kind of okay. in a fever dream state while I was sick. So I need to go back and honestly rewatch the third season again, then jump on this fourth one because, yeah, I've heard it's great. It, it is. Really good. So I'm a contrarian when it comes to Stranger Things, but I've only seen the first season. Okay. And I'm told that season three and four especially are way better. I think with the amount of people who positively responded to this last season, it might be just one of those things I just have to sit down and watch because there was enough of season one that I enjoyed. And I think there's enough interest for me to maybe get through some of the stuff that, I, that doesn't really click with me. Okay. I'm glad you brought this up as a recommendation because I don't think normally it would be brought up, mainly because, again, I'm contrarian and Aaron is behind on the show so uh, thank you for bringing that up i mean if you liked the first season i think you'll definitely love the fourth season because the first season grabbed me right away with especially the opening credits which was a lot like the original show v yeah it was very reminiscent of that yeah so that grabbed me right away because that nostalgia hit me right away and then with all the kids you know it's a lot like a goonies only with monster squad so yeah the show grabbed me right away and then second and third were really good i loved the fourth one fourth one was great yeah the nostalgia is something that i immediately identified with but on the other hand i kind of pushed back on it a little bit because as much as i love spielberg and this is something that people say about spielberg all the time that he knows exactly kind of what emotions to twist and pull Mm -hmm. and the show definitely seemed like it was doing a lot of that emotional manipulation and there was just something about it that i kind of immediately resisted because I was like, all right, I know what you're trying to do, show. You're not that clever. That might be what I ran into, too, then. <laughs> but with season three especially, once it really just fully embraces that, and you just have to kind of get into the groove that, like, okay, this show is a heightened version of the 80s. It is definitely a, this is the idealized weird in our head as we remember it, but not actually as it was version of the 80s. And once I got my mindset correctly on that, I definitely enjoyed it. Just let my brain kind of roll with it a lot more. I liked the characters. I liked the general vibe of the show, but it was just some of the story stuff where it was like, all right, come on. I see what y'all are doing here. But I'm very curious to see the fourth season because I responded to the third season really well. And you know, like I said, I, I hope it wasn't just fever brain. And I don't think it is because lots of people really, really liked the last two seasons, especially. So I'm, I'm definitely wanting to get caught up pretty soon now that I seem to be the last person who hasn't watched it. Because I remember you brought this up on our Day of the Dead episode. Was it season three that began with them sneaking into a screening of Day of the Dead? Yes. See, like stuff like that does make me more interested in like giving it another chance. That's a little better deep cut. It's still just as false in the sense that nobody saw Day of the Dead when it came out, (laughs) right? Let alone like this entire packed audience of people on opening week. Nobody saw Day of the Dead when it came out. It's the same thing as the poster for John Carpenter's The Thing hanging in the kids little basement hangout area 
nobody saw that movie when it came out and that movie was thrashed when it came out and there were parent groups yeah. that were like this is pornography it's that violent no 10 year old kids would have a poster for that hanging up in their room <laughs> but again this is not the real 80s this is the 80s as we fondly remember the 80s and so yeah this is nostalgia 80s and yeah that's just as valid it pushes people who are maybe casual viewers maybe go check these things out go see what is this weird yeah. movie where all these arms break through the wall yeah i want to see this now what is yes yeah. yeah and then hey we're going to be returning to winona rider so yep. she's actually one of the best parts of stranger things i would argue cool well and another thing elizabeth i did see that you posted a couple days ago since we're under recommendations just kind of a quick aside you did post something about demon knight i've been bugging you bro we gotta do it yeah he's been talking about us wanting to do demon knight soon the comedy the horror the practical monster effects yeah really fun movie oh yeah you can tell that people have fun with it demon knight is one that i've been bugging you we gotta do so i love that movie that is a great action movie nothing but good character actors top to bottom so yeah that's one that we gotta do it sooner or later awesome but aaron you only have one recommendation this episode and you and i are gonna share it so yes the first is an album by hip-hop group clipping stylized c-l-i-p-p-i-n-g period the name of this album is visions of bodies being burned it is very much a horror core hip-hop album industrial hip-hop very experimental the production on this is wild almost hard to listen to from a like horror standpoint even i think the big thing that kind of surprised surprised me when I first listened to this album because I heard a couple tracks from this album a year or two ago and it's been in my Apple Music. I just finally sat down and listened to it because I've been itching to hear more horror hip hop. The lead vocalist uh, clipping is David Diggs. Yes. Most people should know as Thomas Jefferson and uh, Lafayette from Hamilton. I see both sides of this argument like Hamilton in retrospect has gotten a little bit of a knock against it from like the hip hop heads specifically for it being very kind of surface level and people kind of poking fun at the musical nerds trying to, to rap basically. But then you have one of like the stars of the show in this experimental horrorcore hip hop group in its fucking raw, dangerous and sounds good. You could go both ways. I, I'm not going to knock anyone who doesn't like Hamilton. I'm not going to knock anyone who loves Hamilton. But David Diggs is really talented, especially as the vocalist in this hip hop group. And it was hilarious because I had just seen him in a bunch of commercials, I think for Grubhub with Sesame Street Muppets. Yeah. He's so wholesome otherwise, but then he's rapping about street violence that you've heard through like hip hop through the ages, but under the backdrop of a slasher movie and then with beats and production that is, think some of the more industrial hardcore experimental shit from like Nine Inch Nails even. Yeah. This is even more of that heightened to like that creepy level. I added a handful of tracks to our Spotify playlist of course. The song that most people will know is called Say the Name, but there's a lot of good shit on this album. It's 16 tracks long it deals from everything from like again urban violence to a little bit of this occult themes under the surface and then also like slashers killing people i read a review where someone called it a very nocturnal horror hip-hop album which i think is kind of a perfect way to describe it it's fucking dark too like for this guy who who was in hamilton and like in this commercial with muppets it's pretty fucking brutal album so like i'm really excited to go back and listen to their other albums 
this one came out not too long ago. It came out in October 2020, just in time for Halloween. And I really recommend it. Good shit. Yeah. I want to say clipping has been around since maybe like 2012, 13, somewhere in there. Yeah. They've been around for a while because I've, I've been listening to them for years. Yeah. I want to say they had an album out even before he did work on Hamilton back in 2014. So yeah. And since then, I mean, he's he's an actor. He's been in a ton of stuff since. Yeah. I actually, weirdly enough, most recently saw him in Soul, the Pixar movie. He does a voice in that. He does a lot of voice work specifically. Nice. Again, it was just funny that I was like, wait, I recognize this voice. Holy shit, it's Thomas Jefferson from Hamilton. Yeah, like, yep. and, and honestly, he's my favorite part of Hamilton anyway, as it is. So like, this is an instant listen for me. I saw on their Wikipedia page, they've been compared and have drawn influence from people as far as Death Grips and My Bloody Valentine and Tim Hecker. A lot of experimental hip hop along with industrial metal kind of all wrapped up into this ball of horror. Good shit. Really enjoy it. Yeah. Second thing I'll bring up real quick, because this is a recommendation that you brought up a couple episodes ago. It's a very bittersweet recommendation for me. I'm a little <laughs> mad and happy at you, Aaron, for bringing this up. You can't be mad at me because I watched it <sighs> and I got hyped about it and then it got canceled. So, yeah. nah, can't get mad at me. So... <sighs> We're going to bring up Archive 81 again, a Netflix show, horror show that was based off of the podcast Archive 81, at least the first season. Loosely based because I did find that they made differences with happens in the show. I think the show sounds like it's a little more supernatural than the podcast itself is. But James Wan was one of the executive producers on it. It was good. It was really damn good, Aaron. You were right. Told you. It was really fucking good. I had watched the first five episodes. I was hooked. I was in. And then I like looked up. I was just like, oh, man, one season two going to start and that's when i saw it had been canceled because netflix isn't letting us have good things right now even though like the series was broke the netflix top tens it was watched by millions of people because it was higher budget i guess it just didn't hit the mark that netflix put but then like i have to question what was the goal that they were yeah that's what i don't get about some of their productions because on one hand you're right that show is kind of expensive there's a whole episode that is period there are actual visual effects in the show here and there and I mean, the cast is not super high profile, but Mamadati's been in stuff at this point. He's had several roles and he was just in the Jurassic Park movie that just came out. So, I mean, there's people in it that you would know, but nobody like super high profile. So I can't imagine it's like a super expensive show. But yeah, what is their number? What were they going for? We're like, OK, cool. This is not meeting that threshold yet. They'll green like a dozen new shows every month that also like don't go anywhere. Yeah. You know, just stop greenlighting so much material and maybe stick with the stuff you have for once. It was great to see Martin Donovan, obviously a Fortune 500 CEO with a dark secret, trying desperately to hide that secret. Yeah, that's every other role he plays, but he's very good at it. Yeah, (laughs) he's very good at it. But yeah, this cast was stellar. I really enjoyed them. This is a horror show I've been looking forward to. If I can't have more Twin Peaks, at least I have Archive 81 and then fucking Netflix cancels it. So it's bittersweet because I really love just I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm not going to say what actually happens because you're going to have no idea what happens anyway until you sit down and watch through this. But just know if you start watching the show, it ends on a cliffhanger and we'll never get a resolution to that goddamn cliffhanger. Don't say never. I'm Uh, hoping 
that maybe like Shudder picks it up. This seems like a perfect show for Shudder, period. Seems like the best thing that they could do is pick it up and continue the show. Yes, I would be so hyped for it. But yeah, I loved it. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, again, you can't be mad at me because it got canceled after I watched it and recommended it. So <laughs> yeah. not my fault. And I didn't realize it, it got canceled until I was like five episodes in. So yeah. yeah. Oops. I was kind of surprised when you said you started. I was like, oh shit, does Derek know that this show got canceled? Nope. Didn't know until it was five episodes. Oh, I was so pissed when I found out. Yep. One last quick aside about that the very first episode the very first scene he goes to a guy who's selling VHS tapes on like a New York street corner the guy selling the VHS tapes is Malachi Nimmons and anyone who's a deep cut fan of anything last podcast does or has done he was a regular on a round table of gentlemen and he yeah. still does stuff with Holden McNeely on his Twitch and he has his own podcast with John Moreno who was part of the Murder Fist people and everybody they have a podcast called Versus it's like a stupid game show on purpose comedy podcast and it's generally hilarious and a lot of times very darkly funny in the same way that murder fist is so yeah check yeah. out verses but yeah malachi nimmons is like the first character the first line of the first episode of archive 81 i thought that was hilarious but yeah let's move on to like the last recommendation the one where you and i are gonna at least have a lot to talk about Aaron. i'll let you take the lead on this one hey there's nothing to take the lead we watch prey the new secret covid predator movie there's something out there i'm coming with you You can't. I'm trying to protect you. Protect me from what? It's time. It knows how to hunt. I know how to survive. Fucking rules, bro. Yeah, fucking rules. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, pretty fun. I was very surprised. I mean, we had been hearing nothing but good things about it leading up to the release. So it was already built up a little bit. But I mean, for a Predator movie, totally fun. Definitely dug the new setting and time period. The idea of putting maybe the first time a Predator's ever visited Earth. And definitely like a young, inexperienced Predator against the most badass warriors in the Comanche Nation. Hell yeah. It was pretty rad. Amber Mid-Thunder was great. Amazing. Amazing in this movie. It was really solid seeing a cast that was actually all First Nations actors. So no weird brown or red face in this movie. I think the only minor gripes that I had, CGI animals are just never going to work for me. They're just not. You can get a Wrangler on set. I know it's expensive. I know it's a pain. But come on, you don't have to have a CGI 
CGI rabbit or a CGI deer. Just put a real animal in there. Come on. I get if a bear is attacking the lead character or if a bear is fighting an invisible predator alien, you can't necessarily have a real bear doing that. Okay, fine. But when it's just a rattlesnake on the ground, get a fucking real rattlesnake. Come on. Yeah, the rattlesnake was the worst one for me. So like, I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies from the last several years I've watched. It clicked with me in so many ways. I was not expecting it to. My only two minor gripes are it didn't get a theatrical release. I would kill for this thing to get a theatrical release. Yeah. And, you know, it was shot in secret, very low key during COVID. It was one of those like the news leaked all of a sudden. It was like, oh, there's a secret predator movie that got shot by the guy who did 10 Cloverfield Lane and it comes out five months. Okay, cool. But yeah, yeah, there's tons of gorgeous drone footage throughout the entire thing. Yeah, man. It's all shot on location. It looks amazing. The scope of it is really, really huge. And I wish seeing that on a big screen would have been pretty solid. That leads to my second gripe, which I share with you, Aaron. And I think this would have been fixed had it had a theatrical release is the animal CGI. And it really was just the rattlesnake and the lion, the mountain lion that she fights. The bear looked fine to me, but... Those two were rough. oh, and the wolf as well. Like, but those other two were really rough. For every me. animal in this movie's fake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just they're going in. Every animal in this movie's fake, except the doggy. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. No, I loved it. I think Naru is one of the most badass main action characters we've had in a while in any movie. The cast of this is phenomenal, of course. I did laugh though. They had a former basketball player play the predator, which was hilarious. I really enjoyed that. With it being like you know two hundred plus years before the first Predator that even the Predator, despite it having advanced technology, its technology was also dated compared to the Predator from like the 1980s movie. Yeah, he doesn't seem as high tech as the ones that we've seen in the main movies thus far. Definitely seems like a younger Predator whatever alien races. He's definitely like skinnier and shorter and his weird tentacle dreads are like thinner. So maybe he's like a teenager or something. I don't know. I used to know the name of the alien species back when I was like really big into the alien versus predator like games and all that stuff. But I couldn't tell you it now. Yeah, it's yelp jaw or something something like that like literally never been spoken aloud by anybody before but this feels like a star making performance especially for amber mid thunder i mean she was already a known quantity like i know she was even in legion which i know you like Aaron. yeah but this is a pretty big leap into like the center so yeah she's she's definitely gonna have a pretty bright future i even read in a review of it that was done by like someone who is first nations and reviews everything under the lens of a First Nations perspective. They gave it like a 4.5 out of 5 and they were just really impressed with that. But I, I was reading about Jane Myers as one of the producers on this, but she also served as the Comanche cultural advisor because she is both Comanche and Blackfoot herself. And I think uh-huh. most actors were Comanche and Blackfoot as well. Pretty much everybody was trying their hardest to make it as historically relevant as they could under the backdrop of a predator. But yeah, that scene with the bear is phenomenal. And that's a, such a good introduction to like the predator when it's not in stealth mode and i feel like this movie more than maybe even predator 2 leans more into the horror than the action than the first predator original predator does which i appreciated all the predator movies are kind of like horror horror adjacent you can take that argument either way but i feel like prey is very much the closest to horror out of all of them yeah because the original predator
Predator has a very slasher movie feel to it. There's a lot of the Predator stalking them and watching them and kind of killing them off one by one very stealthily. This movie is just nonstop. It feels more like Terminator. Yeah, it does. The Predator in this one is just, oh, I'm not trying to be stealthy at all. I'm not trying to be like Invisible Hunter. No, I'm just down here about to fuck everything up that's in my way. So yeah, it feels different. Without spoiling anything, this Predator takes off fucking ton of punishment yeah it's very terminator-esque and it kind of makes that switch from being a stalker into like full-blown slasher territory at one scene so elizabeth highly recommend this listeners highly recommend this do yourselves a favor hop on hulu watch this movie loved it i can't sing its praises more all right let's slide into our movie (laughs) we are going to be discussing brom stoker's dracula directed by francis ford coppola starring gary oldman winona ryder keanu reeves carrie elwes anthony hot sir anthony hopkins excuse me this is maybe there correct me if i'm wrong like this might be the most high profile a-list movie that we have ever covered on this show (laughs) really looking at everybody involved top to bottom every line level person in this this might be the most high profile thing we've covered so far it very well might be but i can guarantee you 100 out of all the movies we've covered this is the cast most that fucks yeah for sure <laughs> like let's be real yeah the cast in this is great i love the artifice is the point i love that aspect of this movie maximalism across the board like just all the gush there it is this is the best movie where tom waits eats bugs <laughs> Before we go into that, give them the trailer. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracula. There's a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in the eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this Make no mistake, he must be stopped. Cool. Winona Ryder. (laughs) Monica Bellucci. (laughs) 
Keanu. There's so many hot people in this. I was not expecting this movie to be as horny as it was, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. But before me and Aaron gush about it, we like to start with our guest, Elizabeth, because you gave us a few movies, but one of your top choices was this movie. And we were like, you know what? This is perfect timing. We haven't done a vampire in, I think, forever. Fright Night might have been the last vampire movie we'd done. Probably so. It yeah. was perfect timing. This is one of these movies that Aaron has been excited to expose me to. What is it about this movie that you love? What is it about this movie that made it your choice that you wanted to come on and guess for? Dracula in general, I've always had a huge draw towards because vampires in general are so diverse in terms of what they mean. Metaphorically, they're definitely about death. They're about sex, love, romance, and everything in between. And then just plain horror. And I'm wearing the Universal Monsters shirt, by the way. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Dracula was always my top choice because of this. Especially with Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola loved Universal Classic Monsters, and he loved Dracula, and so did Winona Ryder. So when she brought the script to Francis Ford Coppola, it was just a meeting of heads in the best of way, because they both knew what they could make here. He took the book and did it as accurate as any movie has before, even with Bela Lugosi's Dracula. That one changed yeah. a lot of the characters. This one stuck the most to the book. And then in terms of filmmaking, he threw in so many early silent film references, experimental camera tricks that a lot of the early horror movies did. Yeah. So in terms of horror, he really knew what he was doing here. And I think it turned out great. <laughs> yeah. It's really like nothing I've seen before. The maximalist style of it. it is. The word I kept coming back to that I, and it, this is not an original thought. Everyone under the sun has said this about this movie. Not only is it gothic horror, but it is operatic. Yeah. yeah. It feels kind of like a mix between a stage play and that maximalist film style that we saw through the 90s. The other films that I think of, weirdly enough, while I was watching this, I was, this reminds me of the 90s Batman movies, specifically the even the Joel Schumacher ones, like with how bombastic Gotham City was in that and like how every scene is just dripping with thousands of details and like stuff's always happening in the background of every single shot. Mm-hmm. Every single shot could be like a still painting even. Every little small detail, even to the point where like in the uh, insane asylum, like all the guys wearing those cages on their heads, which is such a weird kind of thing from history that I wasn't expecting to like be referenced in this movie. Yeah, There actually are a lot of creepy moments in this movie too, but it also blew me away with how much tragedy and romance was also in this movie. And then on top yeah. of that, you also have everyone acting up a storm, just teetering on almost a bombastic comedic way that felt very purposeful. But the difference is everybody bodies at that level yeah yes like everyone's at 11 because i mean obviously this film now seeing it i can see had had influence on vampire media going forward but like even what we do in the shadows riffs on this so hard it was crazy to me like obviously vampires and romance and tragedy with vampires has been a thing forever i mean even Anne rice novels what were popular in 1978 i think that was when interview with the vampire came out but this movie really felt like it 
kind of brought it more into the modern times yeah. of the romantic tragic vampire but yeah again there's still some scary shit and some horrifying shit in this granted it's assumed but uh there's fucking baby murder in this movie that i wasn't yeah. ready for <laughs> which always hits me a little harder now that i'm a dad so like, which is accurate to the original novel too which yeah uh, i'll talk about yeah. that in a little bit but i i reread the book before we recorded just to kind of have oh that wow because okay. it's been since high school that i've actually read through the actual book doing both back to back i was very surprised this is a pretty good adaptation of the thing altogether and there's stuff that is in this movie that plenty of other directors would have cut out there's lots of good stuff in here but i think what really elevates this it's the two additional things one it's coppola specifically wanting to add in a lot of real life in air quotes vlad tepish the third that actual historical figure into the character of dracula because in the original novel there's not really that connection and then the whole romance side of it, which that's James Hart, the screenwriter's edition. And that's really the main thing that got Winona Ryder hooked on it. That entire idea of this ages spanning cosmic romance between him and Winona Ryder, right? Elizabeth Mina, right? That entire aspect is also not in the original novel at all. Dracula is just more of this feral monster creature evil thing. There is no trace tragic side to him in the original novel. So that aspect really, really elevates this movie kind of to the next level. This is also coming out at a time, again, to your point about the maximalist kind of nature of this and some of the other movies that had come out around the same time. This was a point because Dracula and vampire movies have literally been around since the dawn of cinema. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nosferatu is what, 22? And there were vampire movies even before that. So vampire movies have been around literally the entire history of cinema and they have changed and morphed so, 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 so many times, you know, we went through a whole phase in the 70s where there were sexy romantic vampire movies and we had kind of moved out of that again. So this movie is coming at a time where it's bringing Dracula, like the character Dracula and the vampire story back to those classic roots, because at this point, vampire movies were just wholly in this postmodern mode. Just the stuff that kind of came out in the few years, you know, before and right after near dark. The Lost Boys, The Hunger, Once Bitten, Lair of the White Worm, Vampire's Kiss, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. All of those had come out right around the same time, but all of them were postmodern. Let's pull apart the vampire idea and try to have a new take on it and do something different and something fresh. And this is like, no, back to basics, fully, fully like get back to the original story and where everything was from. And it did it in the most again, just biggest, loudest, most maximalist way possible. So question I had for you both actually about this, Gary Oldman's performance as Dracula, I feel like there's an argument to be made with it being just as iconic, but I definitely think it's as memorable as Christopher Lee's and Bela Lugosi's. Do you guys agree with that? Yes, but it's totally different. It's totally different. It's completely different from either of those. I mean, all three of those are iconic in their own ways, but they're all completely different. 
different takes. Absolutely. All three of them are very different. Francis Ford Coppola did pull some things from both of their performances, but Gary Oldman made it all his own. Yeah. And there's a reason everybody loves him. You know, when you think about Dracula, it's like, oh yeah, Gary Oldman. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and just the transformations he goes through in this movie. Absolutely. Again, when you first meet him, it's almost a caricature of Dracula. Yeah. To the point of the accent. He honestly was like a proto Palpatine before the prequel <laughs> Star Wars was ever in and then he transforms into like a sex god by the time he's in London yeah and it's that early 90s version of that but it all totally works somehow like this movie just felt like it wouldn't have worked if it came out in any other time period except for 1992 and it works so fucking well for when it came out well he's the stereotype of the super sexy European guy that everybody's into but he's (laughs) kind of weird and kind of a dork but like it works because he's the exotic like weird foreigner guy you know so you just kind of like whatever your weird little like round sunglasses you goof dude i love sure yeah totally get it anybody that can go from looking like palpatine to looking like dracula and still being a sex god you know that's talent right there yeah yeah he does several transformations even the bat suit and it's still like oh yeah he's he's hot (laughs) yeah yeah that's one of the things i love about this take on dracula is he does transform Mm -hmm. and literally turns into a werewolf man a bat man literal green mist he turns into a pile of rats all of those things when you think about you know all the creatures of darkness he kind of embodies all those things in this story and you know as much as we love what they do in the shadows it's kind of the same thing of when i turn into a bat there's no real skill to it at all i just shout bat 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 Bat! Where'd that asshole go? Bat? And, you know, Dracula would just jump in the air and (laughs) poof into like a little animated bat and fly off. This is full-blown, giant, knobby arms, giant teeth, hair, like monster bat thing, and it's rad as hell, yeah. Oh, he becomes a total demon, yeah. Again, we'll probably talk more about the influences this has later in the episode, but when he turns into all the rats, which which is actually generally kind of a creepy image, I immediately thought of that scene in like one of the first episodes of the first season of what we do in the shadows when Naja does the same thing and I just thought oh that's just what we do in the shadows like doing nope. the weird vampire stuff no it was a total riff on this movie yeah pretty much every yeah. gag in this movie they have ripped off in that show lovingly at some point or another yeah yeah even from the get-go with this movie as soon as it starts and the music cranks up and you start seeing the imagery and like the prologue, that prologue rips dick. It's great. <laughs> so good. All of introducing the real life Vlad the Third stuff is so good and it sets the stage so well for how did he become a vampire? Oh, he literally gave God the middle finger and was like, oh, if I can't have my love to hell with everything, I'll be this force of evil forever. And then it just smashes to the title. And that's just such a hell of a way to start this thing off. It's all accurate, too. I mean, not the giving guy the middle finger and everything, but the whole lead tapish. The historical stuff, yeah. yeah. It's all historical. It's all true. Even his yeah. wife killing herself on the river. That that all happened. 
Also, at at a time, Catholicism basically kind of gave up and didn't have his back at a point. So it would make sense that that would happen. And then the vampiric stuff comes in. But the whole reason why everybody thought Vlad Tepes was a vampire is because he used to impale people, like you see in the opening. And he used to dip his bread in the blood of his victims and eat it. It was like a mock sacrament kind of thing and it just kind of built this whole urban legend kind of thing around him as a all right turks stay out of my area don't mess with me anymore kind of thing it was just building this rep for himself stay out of my territory yeah yeah. (laughs) see i I knew about like about the impalement and all that i did not know about like the false sacrament aspect of him like dipping bread in the people's blood and and eating it i mean yeah he used to sit amongst the people that he impaled set up a little tray you know with his meal and then dip blood that's real life horror shit right there yeah yeah this prologue <laughs> though is maybe the best prologue in any movie i've ever seen it's almost like its own mini movie it felt like a video game cutscene in all the right ways again this was this movie was made well before like the technology for like over the top video game cutscenes were even a thing it was so epic as such like a overused term nowadays but like it really did feel like this is an epic horror movie and not only does it keep that energy but then it goes into the gothic direction the romantic direction the operatic direction we, we joke about like sometimes horror movies it's like a mummy with a dracula cape and a werewolf claws it's a hat on a hat on a hat and this movie is essentially that but it all somehow works and it makes yeah. sense like everything is there for a purpose but man this prologue to this movie rules that image of him stabbing the cross and then it just spewing out blood like it's the shining was one of the coolest images i've seen in a movie in a long time it was so good so where this whole thing kind of conceptually came from winona Ryder was originally cast as mary corleone in the godfather part three and she dropped out pretty late into production just your typical exhaustion that everybody kind of had during the 80s and 90s right and that caused a lot of delays and problems on the picture she wanted to meet with coppola to kind of officially apologize and make sure that there were no ill feelings between them she left him this Dracula script that had been written by James V. Hart, a Shreveport boy, by the way, Derek. <laughs> really? Yeah. He also wrote Hook, Muppet Treasure Island, and Contact. Oh, this dude rules. Well, I'm not a fan of Contact, but those other ones are top notch. Well, he also wrote Tomb Raider 2. So there's your video game oh, well. <laughs> uh, movie. <laughs> she had a profound interest in that script due to the romance kind of at the heart of the story and the depiction of Victorian women breaking free from the sexual repression of the era. Hart had been writing the script since 77 and originally wanted David Lean to direct, which, you know, no big. I'm just going to get the guy who did Lords of Arabia to do this Dracula movie for me. But uh, Coppola also had this long passion for the story. Apparently, he used to read it at night to all the kids that he would oversee at this drama camp that he used to run. So imagine like being nine at a drama camp and Francis Ford Coppola is <laughs> reading you Dracula to get you to go to sleep. Awesome. Had he released The Godfather by this point? Like, where was he in his career? When- this was before all that. Well, before all that. Yeah. Yeah. So he had this very significant connection with the Dracula story before she tossed him this script. I didn't realize Winona Ryder was like such a catalyst for this being made. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, totally. 
he especially found the eroticism of the script intriguing. This was at a time where his studio Zoetrope was kind of on the verge of bankruptcy. And that's really the only reason why he jumped in and was like, all right, fine, fuck it, I'll make The Godfather Part 3, which it's literally the joke. Just when they thought I was out? They pull me back in. (laughs) There you go. He's literally making The Godfather Part 3 to save himself from bankruptcy. And this just seemed like another solid project with a lot of commercial promise. The script had originally been written as a TV movie. Michael Apted was going to direct it. He did a lot of Brit TV, most well-known for Coal Miner's Daughter, Continental Divide, and Gorky Park. He did The World Is Not Enough, which is honestly one of the worst James Bond movies ever made. But memorable. (laughs) Yeah. He remained on as the producer. With this kind of ending up in the hands of Coppola, there were immediate concerns from the studio, from the producers, from everybody that this film was going to actually just kind of go way off the rails with the budget, with scheduling, with everything. Because honestly, as much as I love Coppola, that's something that he was certainly known for. He had a reputation for. There's literally an entire documentary about how insane the making of Apocalypse Now was. That's just about how like off the rails that movie went. Was he also a little bit in the doghouse at this point for the Godfather Part 3? No, because Godfather 3 had not come out once they kind of started on this one. Ah, okay. But he was in the doghouse for stuff like, is it one from the heart? Yeah. It is one from the heart. Okay, yeah. He was kind of in the doghouse from that because that was a huge flop. Cotton Club was a pretty big flop. Rumblefish and The Outsiders, those were well-received movies. They just weren't financial hits necessarily. So he was just kind of in that weird point in his career where the bloom was off the rose a little bit for him, but he was still getting work fairly regularly. But again, just with his history, everybody was concerned that this is going to go off the rails eventually. Today, I learned he's still alive. At the time of recording, he's still alive. Yeah. Didn't realize that. I just assumed he had passed already. Whoops. On a personal note, Heather and I went to the Coppola Winery while we were in California right before COVID and had an amazing meal. I had Martin Scorsese's mom's chicken. And uh, we got to see a lot of the costumes from this movie. The Klimt robe and the like weird muscle fiber armor. Yeah, the Dracula armor. Death gown. Yeah. Yeah. We got to see all those costumes because they are on display at the winery. But no, he's still alive. He just sold the entire winery to fund this last giant insane movie that he's trying to get made called Megalopolis, which is like a crazy sci-fi future thing that's got a million actors in it. So no, he is totally still alive trying to get this last movie off the ground before he retires. So anyway, yeah, immediately... All of his producers were like, yo, this movie is going to be too dark. It's too violent. It's too sexual. It's too weird to be mainstream successful. This is not going to work and it's going to be expensive and you're going to fucking lose control over it. And guess what? It was all those things and it was crushed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) So Coppola specifically took steps to help mitigate a lot of this stuff. Like he knew already, like, all right, I've got to get control over this or they're going to take it away. So he wanted to basically put 
the majority of the budget toward the costuming and just do really bare minimalist sets with just shadows and lighting and make it very stagey on purpose and just have these giant elaborate costumes kind of as the main focus. And so, okay, cool. Yeah, great idea. The studio was like, you can't do that. You got to have actual sets, you dummy. It's like, wait, weren't y'all just saying keep the budget under control, right? But they agreed to shoot in L.A. on sound stages and not actually go overseas to Europe that way. No travel costs, no weather delays. They storyboarded the entire film and planned everything. Every single shot. Every shot does feel deliberate. Yeah. Everything is very deliberate. You can tell like none of this is just coverage that they happen to have for the yeah. most part. Everything is very specific. They put all the storyboards together into this animatic and actually did narration and music. And they inserted all these photographs of artwork from all these different people like Kupka and Klimt and Blake and kind of made this tonal visual guide for the production team just to kind of say like this is what we want now go do it and that way you know you're not having to completely nitpick and micromanage every aspect you can just kind of say this is what we want to go for I trust you my creative team to go actually make this happen that takes a director who a knows how to communicate what they want which can be difficult And B, when you're Coppola, granted, you can have your pick of whoever, but when you have a creative team around you as a director that you can trust, that's a pretty invaluable thing. When you can literally just say, we vibe, we understand each other, now go do this work, and then you can just trust them to go do it on their own. That's an incredibly invaluable thing when it comes to making movies. Aiko Ishioka's costumes are insane. That's one of the main things I love about this movie. They're iconic. Yeah. When you literally have the Simpsons in living color and Leslie Nielsen and the Animaniacs all referencing the costumes from this and making fun of them and poking fun at it, you know you've made something that's really indelible. Stop here for a second because this also leads to one of the more horrifying scarier images in this movie to me lucy is a vampire like full vampire form yeah love it what she was supposed to be buried in outfit (laughs) her like flying at them with fangs out full vampire is such a good horror image caked into my mind from this movie it was a genuinely unsettling moment in the movie when they had to confront her in her tomb that's kind of fucked up when you think about what happens to her character arc because she's basically just manipulated by dracula like the the entire time yeah of the two women she is the one who is trying to have mina kind of break out of her shell a little bit there's an innocence to them but also like this playful sexuality that i think what this movie is really like jumping on when it comes into sexuality through the movie not just with the dracula character himself and just kind of see her to go through that gauntlet and then wind up on the other end basically cursed as this vampire That's one of the bigger horror moments of this entire movie, that whole subplot with her. Yeah, and there's something interesting there, too. The Lucy character in the book is not as outwardly sexual. I was watching this with my mom because I'm crashing with them right now while we're moving. And uh, I remember her saying something like, if Lucy was a real woman during this age, they probably would have burned her at the stake and called her a witch. (laughs) Unfortunately, that outwardly sexual. That's 
absolutely true. It's funny that you say that she's being manipulated by Dracula because, I mean, she's such a free spirit. As soon as you see yeah. she's a free spirit, yeah. she's got three guys that are just in love with her and she's just having fun, not playing with them, but at the same time, you know, having fun. Yeah. I loved that scene, by the way, when she introduces the, the three of them. The poor guy that trips. <laughs> yes I, yeah. I laughed out loud when he like bumbled in she was like one of my favorite characters because of that introduction and just her arc is the most interesting to yeah. me through this whole movie well she's so full of life and she's so full of sexuality too and she does not hide it and the only way she gets away with it is because she's got money but even with yeah. that if she married one of those guys and they died she would be burned at the stake because she wouldn't be able to keep that money so it's interesting that you say that because I mean either way <laughs> she's not going to have a very good outcome because she's so outgoing with herself and her her sexuality so it's kind of interesting to see her get turned by Dracula because she kind of goes all out in that aspect as well so it's kind of liberated but at the same time you know she gets her head cut off and, and I'm glad you brought that up because the two comparisons I drew with her character specifically was I thought of the witch and how that ends mm-hmm. and like that liberation and I also thought of going back to Fright Night and again another vampire movie I drew a comparison weirdly enough for her to Evil Ed Sure, how yeah. he kind of really lets loose and has almost his own kind of liberation when he's turned into a vampire too. Mm-hmm. During when we had our Fright Night episode, Elizabeth, we talked about there being queer undertones between Evil Ed and the main character. Oh, how there's like an unrequited love almost from Evil Ed. It's under the surface when he's still human, but when he's turned into a vampire, like his threats are, they're supposed to be like vampire threats, but there's a lot of like homoeroticism about his threats towards him. Like I just felt like they're kind of liberation and they're coming out it kind of felt eerily similar to those two characters to me i totally see that again with vampires and sexuality even back in the times when they thought vampirism was real and they thought people were rising from the dead and wreaking havoc the stories that were written about vampirism a lot of them was about sexuality and homoerotic tendencies you know it was also a way to keep people from thinking that maybe they were attracted to the same sex was using vampires but at the same time vampires were also liberating that side of things as well so yeah i love that they added in the kiss between lucy and mina yeah really yeah into that and also it shows what was going on in that time period of really dumbing everything down I mean, even Mina, she's this very loving, sweet person. She's trying to do the right thing. She's trying to have the right status in her life and marry the right guy, you know, and be a good wife. And at the same time, she wants more, yeah. you know, and her friendship with Lucy kind of helps her tap into that. Even more so with exploring around the whole vampiric aspect of it really helps her tap into that. And then when she meets Gary Oldman, you know, it's kind of like the floodgate have been opened and <laughs> the new hot shit yeah it's, everything's <laughs> heightened and it's like oh wow i didn't realize this was possible i love the scene between her and keanu reeves when he's about to say goodbye and he's like i'm going now 
And she's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's make out or something. Yeah. yeah. She's the one initiating it. She wants more. And he's just trying to get the great job and be a good husband and get the status. And she's like, no, I, I, I want more than this. <laughs> yeah. For her, there's like sexual frustration towards Harker exactly. in this. Yeah. He's the nice husband type yeah. who's going to take good care of you. But like, he's not meeting that need for her. And then that's when new hot shit Count Dracula, Gary Oldman comes in. Kidding aside, that's kind of where you can always lean on the whole like, oh, vampires have this hypnotic charm. But I think this movie almost unlocks that like not only is this a romance across the ages and she's the reincarnated spouse of his but again going back to the liberation that we talked about with lucy like dracula himself is allowing her to like express herself freely and like release that sexual energy in ways that she feels like she's not able to with harker oddly enough when harker is just left in captivity at dracula's castle he's basically at the mercy of the brides, of the yeah. brides it's implied that they're just draining him but like it's pretty pretty like erotic what they're doing with him and he's just like no please don't no i'm yeah. too innocent like we know where she bit we saw that yeah <laughs> let's just say aaron and i would probably be a little more down with that situation than harker was in this movie but yeah it, it was just funny how or not only funny it's just kind of masterful how coppola really portrayed this whole dynamic of sexuality and romance mm-hmm. on top of all these other like a, a classic vampire tale really yeah and On the more tragic and dark end of this, you know, the Freudian explanation of our fascination with vampires is just that entire idea of sex with strangers and how that can be alluring, but it's dangerous, but it's, you know, there's something intriguing about it. Like that entire kind of weird underlying thing is what really draws people to the entire vampire myth in a lot of ways this movie is so much about that because that whole sexual angle is just not present in the original book but the fact that you know obviously dracula is this all-consuming eating killing fucking everything in his path kind of monster for a while you know that ultimately is what destroys lucy because she's naive enough to kind of go along with that and he's predator enough that he takes advantage of that and that's ultimately what kind of causes her downfall but then dracula's whole okay well here is my love here she is i need to like straighten up he turns into a little bit of a dork he's a little bit of like a romantic dork about it literally goes from a wolf man to a fop you know so he literally makes that transition in order to like become more gentlemanly so you talked about how like the prologue is it's like almost its own short film then you have harker at dracula's castle as dracula's kind of sort of stalking him and that feels very much like a 1930s old school dracula film and then the brides are introduced instantly there's that more modern like sexual angle to it then you flip and go over to london and count dracula d ages and becomes hot then it's this almost borderline erotic horror film but also there's even a little bit of romantic comedy between like his interactions with Mina like when they're first meeting each other I was surprised at how long Harker was sort of just dropped from this movie yeah he's just in the (laughs) castle getting drained for a month yeah and then like the kind of final moments of this jump in between like straight up horror movie and then Brendan Fraser's the mummy action movie like in terms like that chase scene it's interesting just how much this movie again hat on a hat on a hat genre jumps through so many different moments of horror and subgenres but it all just feels like it works yeah we're not kidding you when we say how maximalist 
rest of this movie is and how every single shot has tons of detail and looks like a painting. It's amazing to the point where like even when Harker's just in the carriage going to Transylvania and you see Dracula's eyes over the sky, he's narrating his own letter he wrote to him. Like even that was super stylized. If, if we're going to point out characters that I wish I could have seen more and wouldn't want to know the history of, I want to know that fucking like carriage driver that Dracula has, that ghoul that kind of just hisses. Who is also Gary Oldman, by the way. Oh, is that is that Gary Oldman as well? Yeah, yeah that's also him just in a different costume, different makeup. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wanted to know more about that character. Where did he come from? What is his whole deal? And then we haven't even talked about Tom Waits as the familiar. Yeah, as Renfield, which Renfield. obviously Tom Waits, I feel like somebody literally just oh we need tom again he's been in these other coppola movies so somebody drive down to pomona go to this bar it's 3 30 he should be there by now <laughs> go ahead and just dump him in the car and drive him up here and that's exactly what happened we'll just pay him in cigarettes and whiskey <laughs> yeah exactly was this bone machine tom waits ah! I want to say that's what was coming out around this time. Yeah. What era of Tom Waits was this? Because that also feels like it would have lent into what the kind of performance he put into this movie. Yeah, no, I think that's right around this time. But like I mentioned, he had been in a lot of Coppola's previous movies. He was in One from the Heart. He was in The Outsiders and Rumblefish and The Cotton Club as well. So, I mean, he had this kind of long history with Coppola to begin with. So it seemed like a slam dunk. He was a great performance in this. Yeah, he's great. He's always good when he shows up steve buscemi was the first choice and turned down the role and it's just one of those things where it's like sure but tom waits come on and how did you not just go to him in the first place but that also feels like a a mistake uh on his part to turn that role down yeah interestingly enough too there's so much crossover with this cast having interacted in this movie but then also working together later so this is another one of those weird things looking up. Okay, Keanu and Winona Ryder have definitely worked together a few times, right? They were just in Destination Wedding together. Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman have worked together separately later. But Tom Waits was also in Book of Eli with Gary Oldman. There's lots of weird 20 years later kind of crossover with a lot of this cast where they end up working together again. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it that out of all the characters, Coppola was just coolest on Harker? Wasn't the casting Keanu basically just, let's just get a pretty boy who's marketable? I know Winona Ryder was friends with him, so I think she did recommend him for the role gotcha feel comfortable yeah this was one where the studio obviously was like okay cool who do we want and the studio threw out recommendations for pretty much every role i mean to give you an idea the jonathan harker character coppola originally wanted johnny depp writer said hey check out keanu Christian Slater apparently turned down the role because the studio offered it to him, and apparently he regrets turning it down, which, sure, why would you not? Charlie Sheen also allegedly auditioned for the role. So the studio had other people in mind. Oh, that would have been bad. (laughs) But yeah, Reeves was ultimately kind of brought in by Ryder. Coppola claims he worked 
incredibly hard on the accent. Keanu Reeves has even said, yeah. like, I could have done better. And everybody talks about his accent being bad, but whatever. We talked about this before we started recording. All the accents are kind of bad in this movie. They're all heightened. They're all over the top. And I would rather the performance be good. Exactly. Than, like, the accent be accurate. Yeah. Just getting an accurate accent doesn't make your performance worthy, you know? Yeah. And Reeves is not my favorite in this movie, but that's honestly because of like the star power that's around him he's and playing a boring character though that's the thing he's yeah. just, of everybody in this cast he kind of has the least amount to do you know it's he was kind of screwed from the beginning yeah he does give a great performance i mean if you see you know when he's yeah. around three brides you know he looks like he's losing it when he sees the baby and everything yeah from that point on his performance just skyrockets and you really see yeah. how he feels the whole time. But everything's moving so fast that it just kind of gets glazed over. Yeah. Every shot just keeps moving, 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 moving. Yeah. Well, no, the only thing I knew about this movie before watching it was a lot of people point to it as like one of the better like 90s movies and one of the more important movies in Coppola's filmography. Later period, for sure, yeah. The only other thing I knew is everyone makes fun of Keanu Reeves' accent in this. I was expecting like some Tommy Wiseau like level bullshit. Yeah, it's not the best and he's not the best character and this is fairly early Keanu. I mean, he'd he been in a bunch of stuff at this point, but this is not the Matrix Keanu. This is not John Wick Keanu. This is still pretty young and inexperienced and I think he did a fine job with that kind yeah, of character. Totally. You really couldn't cast anyone and make that character any more interesting than what it was. And again, you're acting alongside Anthony Hopkins as fucking Van Helsing, Winona Ryder, and Count Dracula Gary Oldman. You're going to be taking a backseat to them. Yeah, acting against Oldman is already tough but then when Hopkins comes in and somehow choose the scenery even harder, you're <laughs> gonna always look like kind of the dull feather in the bunch when that's Dude, what you're up against you know i love that he was grizzled like van helsing who just didn't give a fuck anymore and was just like we need to kill evil that was not the van helsing i was expecting yeah i just love his matter of fact lines like doctor yeah how did lucy die was she in great pain yeah she was in great pain then we cut off her head and drove a stick to her heart and burned it and then she found peace doctor that's it. Bye, right in go. front of Mina. And Mina's like, oh my God. Yeah, we're just going to behead your best friend. Deal with it. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> Getting back to like the production stuff again. I mentioned Aiko Ishioka's costumes, which she won an Oscar for. She would go on and do a lot of Tarsum's movies, which totally makes sense. So she did The Cell and The Fall and Immortals and all those kind of movies, which all have really insane theatrical costuming. I can totally see the line drawn from this movie to The Cell. Oh, yeah. That makes so much percent. sense to me. Yeah. Comic book artist Jim Steranko was also a project conceptualist for this. Didn't know that. That's cool. And he's the dude who kind of brought the weird trippiness to all the 70s Marvel stuff in a wild way. This was one of Michael Bauhaus's kind of odd, non-Fassbender, non-Scorsese movies. So like I mentioned, he he worked with Fassbender on Petra von Kant and Fox and His Friends and World on a Wire. And then he worked with Scorsese from the 80s all the way through to the 2000s. He did After Hours, Color of Money, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, The Age of Innocence, 
also with Winona Ryder. Gangs of New York, The Departed. So like he had been working with Scorsese steadily. So this was one of those things where Coppola really wanted to look and feel like the original Nosferatu. And Bauhaus, to his credit, knows how to do lighting. So that's one of the things where he was an incredible get and just one of those people where you could just say like, this is what I need and he can go do it. Seeing that you have a lot of experience in effects and makeup, was this a movie that inspired you to work into that or or was getting into like makeup a happenstance thing to break into the industry? And if that's the case, do you like kind of look back on this movie as kind of an inspiration? I think so. The blood element, definitely. I'm not sure if you guys know, but I make effects blood. It comes out of everything. It's called Cine Blood Typo. And it's actually for all film departments or just anybody in general that wants blood that washes out and it's edible. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Here's a picture of you in a bathtub full of the blood. That's great. Oh, shit. Are these also like all the movies that use the blood? Yep. It was Jacob's Wife. It was used in Werewolves Within. The wardrobe department used it. Evil. It was used on that show. Yeah, nice. my personal projects over the years have definitely used my blood <laughs> quite a bit. You can buy it in two ounce, eight ounce, 22 ounce and half gallon, mm-hmm. it looks like. Yeah, I might have to keep this in mind just for like uh, Halloween costumes, yeah. uh, especially if it's edible blood. Yes. That makes it even better. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Jacob's wife actually was shot down here in Mississippi. It was shot 45 minutes from my house, oh, actually. Wow. So, yeah, that's pretty wild such a small world that that happens all the time yeah it's wild watching this and with the cross and just the blood going everywhere i thought was the coolest thing ever because it's so gross and gory <laughs> <laughs> so anything bloody and you know vampires are tend to be very bloody i i always thought was the coolest thing in movies but then the monster effects in this are just so over the top amazing the whole bodysuit of gary oldman and the bat human it's so person good. it's so amazing and it looks so scary that type of stuff always just it's so fun and cool watching that stuff in movies any type of movie that has practical effects and just monster upon monster upon monster is just the coolest thing ever because i always try and look and see how they did it yeah especially any type of wounds and everything going back the scene where mina and dracula are in the bed together and like he cuts his chest open (laughs) i just watched it again and you know I'm, i'm looking really closely watching you know the cut form on his chest and it's like oh yep i know how they did that now yeah and all of that stuff i think is just so cool and fun it's like a magic trick yeah totally so yeah and uh, kind of going back to pray there are a couple of pretty neat blood effects i felt like i, I think some of them were practical right aaron in pray there might have been a few yeah, it wasn't was all just mostly mostly visual effects stuff in that one yeah there was a torture part though that i was pretty sure was like that's pretty practical speaking of effects that's another one of the major major elements of this movie so coppola insisted on only wanting to do practical in-camera effects the type of stuff that was done during the earliest days of cinema when everything was very sleight of hand magic a lot of magicians would use early cinema to kind of show off their tricks 
that all coincides exactly with when this story is set. So he just had this notion of why don't we just do the effects for this movie as they would have been done when this movie took place. So it's a lot of the really early stuff that you see in George Millier's stuff or the Lumiere brothers, the effects team that Coppola hired, all these guys were like, yo, you can't do this. This is not going to work. <laughs> you know, you have to use CGI. We can't do this stuff practically. It's just not possible. And he just kind of said, cool you're all fired and I'm going to hire my 20 year old son to figure it out. I'm learning with you going through all this. A lot of this movie seems like, Hey, Francis Ford Coppola, you can't do this. Okay, cool. I'm going to do it. And then he does it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. There's always a way that you can figure out how to do this stuff because they figured out how to do it 80 years prior, you know? So like you can still figure out how to make this stuff work even in a modern standpoint. That's the horror genre. Yeah, it's totally. all about it's figuring things, finding out. ways to make yeah. it work, because even in this movie, a Francis Ford Coppola movie, you're telling me that they still had to find ways to figure it out and make it work. Yeah, I'm sure other genres have the same thing, but it really does feel like horror pioneers that idea of, all right, we're given these limitations. How do we make something amazing yeah. out of a limited budget, whatever? That's completely true. I mean, even early on with the Wolfman, the whole look away, yep. turn back, add more prosthetics to the face look away turn back you know he transforms even more yeah. or like when somebody's hand dissolves you know all camera tricks yeah. horror has always done that horror has always been experimental and coppola really brought that back in a big way even with the eyes and the hill he apparently did that all at once while they were filming he did the eyes he had some way of doing it and the the castle was painted on glass mm, nice is so cool. The castle, when you see them kind of riding up, it's all a big matte painting. Yeah. The scene on the train is actually kind of a multi-step thing because, again, this is all done in camera. Yeah. The entire background with the mountains, it's three different layers of fake model mountains that are literally all moving at different speeds. Derek, for you to kind of visualize this, think old side-scroller NES stuff mm-hmm. and how the yeah. very, very, very back, back, background is moving a little bit slower, but everything in the foreground is moving a little bit faster right? Yeah. to kind of create like Mario. motion effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So they have a model doing that. They then project... Gary Oldman's eyes onto a backdrop that is actively live there while they're filming. Then they took that footage and then they projected that onto a screen (laughs) that it's behind this fake train cart that's on a gimbal that's rocking around that Keanu's on. So it was all done in camera live. That's cool. And there's no, that's really cool. Back in compositing. There's no dissolved. Like there's no optical effects involved in all that. Pretty much all the movie is designed that way where even the rats that are like running upside down, that's an effect where they shoot one take with the rats and they literally have what's called a mat is cut out that literally goes around the lens of the camera. And it literally just kind of creates a little hole of just what you want to shoot. 
They'll shoot and expose that part of the film, and then they'll literally rewind the film and then make a reverse mat that just covers up that exact part. That's so cool. And then shoot the other part of it, and they do it all in camera. That's exactly how they would have done it 80, 90 years ago. Both of you are about to laugh at me, and like I'm about to show my ass in terms of like not knowing much about movies and production. When was green screen technology popularized? Was that even later after this movie? Later in the 90s? Late 60s early 70s uh, okay that's when blue screen started really kind of coming out with star wars and then cgi as we know it was definitely that's what i mean yeah, 80s, yeah early 90s thing yeah, yeah. but remember this <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah not digital yeah, not digitally, right. Green screen as I know it was definitely not used like even in this movie, right? Not at all. Apparently, yeah, that's crazy. The only optical effect that is in this movie is the like rings of blue fire. That's literally the only optical effect that they didn't actually do in camera. That was kind of like, for lack of better terms, the shittiest looking visual. Everything else was excellent. And that one was kind of a little like, eh, eh, that one feels a little dated still. Well, I think it's just that it's a little bit uncanny because it's an optical yeah. effect. It doesn't fit in with all the other stuff. Like everything else looks of a piece, right? Yeah, exactly. But everything else was, it was shadow puppets. It was a lot of reverse photography. Many times that the vampires are kind of have that weird creaky movie. It's they're literally filming it all in reverse. Yeah. So when Lucy's creeping down the steps of the mausoleum looking all weird and the, the candles are coming to life, they literally did all that backwards yeah. where the candles were already lit. They wished the candles out. She's walking up the steps backwards. And then, of course, when they play it forwards, it looks herky-jerky and weird. Weird and creepy, yeah. I think all the illusions that they pull off, it does lend to the feeling of like you're almost watching kind of a stage play in a weird way in some ways, but it works that way with how style. Yeah. Absolutely. And the shadow work, especially like when Harker in the beginning is at Dracula's castle and you always see like Dracula's hand creeping up on him, you know, Dracula is like on the other side of the room, even though it felt very like 1930s, 1922, like Nosferatu going up the stairs. It all works so well. And it's literally just another goober dude in the butt wig in the background, just kind of floating around making the shadows while Gary Oldman's on camera. You know, like it's just the simplest thing, but it works so well roman coppola was obsessed with magic and magicians and special effects while they were filming the godfather he just kind of got put at dick smith's makeup studio and just kind of babysat there wow so like he kind of grew up around one of the masters of makeup effects you know so he from a very young age was obsessed with all this stuff you know so he was put in charge of all this coppola trusted him enough to pull it off and he totally did and he also was the second unit director as well too so that was one of the more ingenious things about this movie and again like you said this was a lot of you can't do this coppola and he's just like mm, watch me do it so <laughs> that definitely pulled off well i made the godfather asshole i can do it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and apocalypse now you could just <laughs> yeah exactly there is no movie shoot that will ever be as insane as apocalypse now like if he survived apocalypse now he can make this movie yes. come on well and i love that apocalypse now is regarded as one of the best movies are made but then the documentary about how fucking crazy the shoot of it is also like one of the best documentaries, the best documentaries ever made, ever made? Like- yeah So getting into the acting part of it, like I mentioned earlier, Coppola has an actual dramatic background. He has a theater background. Working with actors is always one of his 
strong points, but he is very particular with how he works with actors. Like we've talked about on the show, you'll have a lot of directors like Hitchcock, let's say, who completely hated actors, hated working with actors, literally thought of them as cattle and just let me put you here and move you around and I will control you. Just do what I'm telling you to do. And then you have people like Coppola who want to kind of organically create the characters and draw out all these weird things. And it's way more process. And a lot of actors really jive with that. Anthony Hopkins and Oldman both have a theatrical background as well, too. So both of them really worked well with this. It makes me think of what you said about how Anthony Hopkins loved playing Odin and Thor, and it kind of reinvigorated him a little bit. But like when he was playing that part, he marked all his lines in AR. No acting required. <laughs> no acting required. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. got extensive rehearsal time on this movie, which that's fairly unusual to like block out a couple of of weeks just for the cast to like get together, rehearse everything and kind of figure out the characters and process everything before. And that's very rare. Most of the times they just maybe do a table read. And then if you do that, that you're lucky. Yeah. Table yeah. Read. Sometimes it can just be literally rehearse where you're stepping here through the lines and then, yeah. okay, we're ready to shoot. And he read the original book, which was really smart too. Because all of them got a better idea of what they were doing. Yeah, it took two solid days, but they literally sat down at a table together and they read through the entire original novel and then moved into actually rehearsing the screenplay itself. Just out of general curiosity, Elizabeth, did you guys do any like table read or rehearsal for the Dark Offerings? I'm very curious with that being all shot in basically like an online meeting setting like like we're in right now. Or just long takes. That takes a lot of coordination and a lot of planning to get that stuff right. So yeah, what level of rehearsal did y'all do? Basically what we did was, I mean, since most of the characters were at one point best friends, we all hung out on Zoom and just talked. Yeah. We hung out. We just chatted about normal stuff. And then once we did that, then we started getting into the lines. So we did end up doing a big table read of everything. And we got to see how everybody interacted with each other. And thankfully, since we did do that, we were all basically buddy-buddy by the time we started rolling. Yeah. I honestly thought you all were just already friends. Okay, we're all industry people now. We've known each other either like prior to that or like met each other on different projects and came together. I knew most of the actors. Some of them I didn't really spend time with at all. And then they didn't know each other. So none of them knew each other. Uh, So basically when we all got online and, hey, this is everybody, you're playing this person, you're playing this person, everybody started to kind of gravitate towards their character already. And then when started yeah. interacting it was just like okay well you two are snippy with each other that's perfect because that's what you're gonna be doing <laughs> it ended up working out perfectly <laughs> yeah that's cool as we do this podcast i'm more and more fascinated and i know this is kind of aaron's influence rubbing off on me because he's very much about how did this get made mm-hmm. i am finding a lot of this stuff more and more fascinating of how do these projects come together <laughs> very hard yeah i tried to do a D session during covid over skype with six of my friends yeah. that 
that fell apart with just hurting cats with all our schedules. Can't imagine making a goddamn movie. Yeah, it really is complicated because there's so many moving elements, and then trying to piece them all together. And also, since it was basically just me, the actors, the director, and that was it. And then we had a lighting person basically helping us with each of our lighting so it could be as good as it could look. But that was it. Yeah, that was our crew. Yeah, we had to be on top of our own continuity. I gave everybody a blood basket of you know blood and whatever <laughs> was going to be breaking. No spoilers here, but just you know some practical gag stuff to use in their apartment. That's cool. And kind of again going back to like Copal having to figure things out. It sounds like you guys had to figure it out. So it's just kind of every level of filmmaking, no matter the same millions problems. of dollars of budget yeah. or just thousands, it's all kind of like the same problems. Sure, and yep. Even having a bigger budget can be even more complicated because where does the money end up going? Yeah, we've talked about that previously before where like, and I love John Carpenter, but sometimes I think he does better when he's very limited and like having to figure it out. Yeah, that can happen. I mean, a a lot of times the first movie that has zero budget can be the best movie. And then, you know, you get to the third movie that has billions of dollars attached to it. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that was good. Yeah. yeah. And that that can happen with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Having a tight budget made them have to resort to even more practical, which even worked out better because that's what he was trying to do in the first place. Yeah. It really ended up amazing. Now, on the opposite side of that, as far as what are we doing with this money? And I guess something that you guys didn't have the luxury of doing. Apparently, Coppola had Grant, Elwes, and Campbell the three bros all go on adventures together (laughs) to build camaraderie and friendship. They went horseback riding and hot air ballooning. They like hung out and went on riverboat gambling trips and stuff like that. And uh, that does not sound like something that y'all had the opportunity to do with your movie. Unfortunately, (laughs) other weird things that they would do. And this is like an old dramaturgic exercise thing. The actors would often all be blindfolded and then Gary Oldman would creep around (laughs) and whisper like evil vile things in their ears in order to get more of an emotional rise out of them during filming and I watched some behind the scenes stuff where he's in the bat suit and all the cast is blindfolded and he's just creeping around in character you know whispering awful things into everybody's ears like I said most of the cast responded to this really well except for Winona Ryder. She was the one person who was like, I can't work with this foolishness. So that kind of makes me think of whenever they'll have like a scene and they know something's supposed to happen, but they have no idea when and they don't they really don't know them. what. Yeah. And they just get jump scared as if it's the actual jump scare happening and they shoot yeah. the genuine reaction, which is a little cruel. Yes. It also is a good way to get some genuine emotion out of a scene. We actually did that with the Dark Offerings. <laughs> Oh, shit, you did? That's great. We had to film the (laughs) the death scene separately, and then we showed it to each actor and recorded their reaction to it. Awesome. Nice. They thought that was really fun, which I'm happy about. (laughs) One of those death scenes was the big jump scare for me, so that one got quite a rise. Yep, it did. I think everybody reacted really honestly to it. Yeah, that was good. And yeah, like I mentioned, Winona Ryder was the one person in the cast who was like, I can't do this. 
this. I'm I'm not cut out for this. This isn't making any difference for me. So officially, Winona Ryder is against Jared Leto's method acting, right? Yes, probably so. Good. Good for her. Yeah, Good for she her. probably takes the Laurence Olivier approach of it's called acting act. Yeah. Coppola <laughs> wanted Hopkins and Reeves to like yell at her from offset and call her names and stuff to like get her to cry and emotionally react. And they were both just like, no, we're not going to do that. Ryder and Oldman fell out real early into production because he was just so constantly intense and, you know, method through the whole thing. And she stated that he felt dangerous to be around when they were filming because he was in the middle of a divorce and he was still struggling with alcoholism. And so all of that on top of, oh, you're playing Dracula was just too intense for her. So they didn't get along at all while they were filming this. And apparently they're like buds now, but he was just too intense with all the method stuff. So yeah, writer seems to be the one person who just did not put up with any of that nonsense. Good for her. That makes me respect her even more. Yeah. <laughs> you even tell watching the movie at all. No, you couldn't. Yeah. Really like they're in love in the movie. I thought. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. They have, they have great (laughs) chemistry in such a weird way, but it works. Yeah. That's always weird to me. Like when you watch a movie and you assume like, Oh, if I had to guess this person was a pain in the ass behind the camera and these two got along great, but then it's the opposite when you, when you actually go into the history, like I didn't suspect Gary Oldman was a pain in the ass or at least didn't get along with Winona Ryder during this. I just assumed he just was Gary Oldman being an actor basically. Yeah. He and Coppola butted heads a lot because Coppola would want, you know, one thing and Oldman just wasn't jiving. Like I saw some behind the scenes stuff and they definitely were like arguing on set back and forth. Yeah, that was interesting. That kind of happens with people that play the bad guys in movies. They seem like they're so evil because they're playing somebody evil, but then you meet them in person and they're the sweetest person in the world. Yeah. And that happens quite yeah. A lot of people that play the villain are actually really sweet people in real life. Yeah. I used to be a lot more into pro wrestling. And I still follow a couple pro wrestlers, just their other projects. One of my favorite personalities is this guy named Adam Cole. And he is the biggest sweetheart nerd outside of wrestling. But he is such a piece of shit, egotistical jerk when he plays his character. And I feel like that it's very similar to the people who play a lot of the villains. I know that... um he plays Baron Zemo in Daniel MCU. Brule. Daniel Brühl. Like, he was also that Nazi in Inglorious Bastards, and he's such an asshole in that and, like, evil as hell. I've heard he's the sweetest guy ever in real life. Aww. Yeah. Wojciech Kilar's score for this movie rocks. I love this score. I have always loved the score. It has weird hints of Holst's Mars, the bringer of war in it at certain <laughs> parts.
it also has a little bit of James Bernard's Dracula scores for the Hammer movie. So it's interesting because like the movie, the score is also this weird pastiche of other things, but in a way that wholly works for this movie. The love theme in this movie is great. Just overall, man, I, I love this score. And it's definitely one that I have in pretty regular rotation as far as my work music, just have on movie stuff. Definitely love it. The Annie Lennox pop song over the credits, Love Song for Vampire, is also really good. Although, should it have been Tom Waits's Sea of Love instead, if we're talking about I crossed oceans of time to be with you, you know, just imagine if there was a weird Tom Waits love song over the credits on this one. Just... <laughs> His gravelly ass voice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why not both? <laughs> they both could have been on there. Yeah. Have Annie Lennox's gorgeous voice singing this weird 90s pop song that's great. And then just Tom Waits. Yeah, I'm a vampire. You can be a vampire too. <laughs> This was the first U.S. movie to be edited on a non-linear editing system, which is interesting because everything in this movie is done in camera and practical, and yet it's the first movie to actually be edited digitally. Yeah, so people who have no idea what you're talking about, that just means it was edited digitally? Yes, instead of we are going to take actual film and cut oh, okay, it all together, it's literally like we're going to feed all of it into a computer and digitally edit it this way. Shit, they were still doing it that way, like up until 92 they were doing that up into the 2000s lots of productions still used old school editing on flatbeds because the software was expensive computing technology was just not at a place where it could really handle that type of editing yet because we you take for granted the fact that this stupid phone in our pocket (laughs) can literally do all that editing now and at the time you had to have insane computing power to handle this type of stuff let alone digital rendering this movie would have been pretty straightforward to edit that way because there was no back-end rendering and stuff that had to be done but yeah this was one of the first movies to be edited this way there was also supposedly 25 minutes of this movie that was cut due to being too gory by test audiences too gory Although, like i don't know what those 25 minutes would have been because the story is pretty intact so i don't really know what they would have cut necessarily i mean and they do like show you everything of decapitating lucy yeah i mean this movie is super gory and explicit already so i don't know what they would have cut i mean normally i make fun of the mpaa and test screenings and all that because they always just go to like the middle of the suburbs in the middle of the week and they have just a bunch of stay-at-home moms and clergy come and rate everything and of course everything is too sexual too violent too explicit whatever but this movie gets away with so much stuff already i'm genuinely curious what did they cut well yeah and it being an american movie because we're so ass backwards even now with our view on sexuality versus violence i'm surprised the stuff that was cut was the violence and not more the sexuality that's true i mean even the kiss between mina and lucy 
everybody was just like, oh my gosh, did you see the kiss? Because even that was really yeah. seen. And that gets cut quick, too. Yeah, and it gets cut really quick. Yeah, I rewinded it 15 seconds to re- like be like, wait, did that just happen? Because it's happening almost like in this dreamlike ethereal sequence of events. Boom, boom, boom. And then it does that. And I'm like, I had to do a double take. That sequence of events specifically, not just them kissing, but just that whole moment of the rain and everything. Mm-hmm. That was where the themes of the movie really clicked for me, by the way. I I don't know why that was such a focal point. I don't know why that was such a focal point, (laughs) Derek. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, no writer in the. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, ultimately, I'm happily married. I have a child. Don't throw me under the bus like this. So that's what I was about to say a second ago. Speaking of dumb shit and ratings. So this is now the third, fourth instance that I've come across in research for these movies where, oh, literally an actress showed up the day of to do nude scenes and they were like, cool. So we got to figure out your bush because we can't do too much but we also can't do too little. Really? It's got to be, yeah, like this is the weird stuff with ratings. And so Sadie Frost showed up and contractually she agreed to the nudity and everything that was like part of her casting. But when she showed up, they were like, cool, so we've got to basically get you with hairstyling. And she was like, wait, what? You know, and it's just one of those things. How was that stuff not figured out in contracts ahead of time too? You know, it's still to this day not. They have intimacy coordinators and everything now, but that stuff is still not quite figured out from a contract standpoint because it's not like you can just show up and be like oh cool by the way so this is again the like third or fourth instance of that being something where they were like oh but the ratings like we've got to get a, a rating so we have to do this exactly right come on I, I say that goes back to the American cinema and really you know totally totally That's what I'm society like, this is one of those things where she's British so she was like why is this a yeah, thing right we're so ass backwards with sexuality but then like violence is not that big of a deal yeah yet this movie exactly is next getting tore open and blood drenched everywhere <laughs> lord forbid you see a little bit of extra bush in this movie anyway the film despite all the doom and gloom despite all the like naysaying made 83 million dollars in north america and worldwide total of 216 broke november opening records it was the ninth highest grossing movie of the year the budget was 40 million dollars this was a huge hit it literally saved coppola from bankruptcy he kept his studio it won three academy awards so i mean this movie did incredibly well all things considered for a movie that despite all the warnings of it being too violent and too weird and too sexual and it was all those things the movie still works and the movie was still successful and people love the movie you know i remember when this movie came out i saw the posters when i was a kid i remember the poster that poster of yeah. the like gargoyle face with the wolves and just dracula on it immediately yeah. my kid brain was like what is this i need yeah. to see this yeah it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I was was it was 92 when this dropped. I had just turned, I think, four or five. Yeah. yeah, I still clearly remember that poster like the first time I saw it. And it was probably one of those things my parents wish I hadn't seen, but it was like just everywhere. But uh, yeah, that's one of the first movie posters I remember in my mind seeing. Yeah, that gate made of all the characters and the demon head on top and everything that came out. And there were 3D bookmarks we had in Michigan of all mm-hmm. the characters that you could collect as cool. the round glasses. <laughs> oh yeah, those were everywhere, man. They had the 3D 
Dragon where yep. you could see like an eyeball in the glasses that looked just like the ones that Gary Oldman used. Yeah, I, I remember we would have book fairs. And for like a couple of years after this movie came out through the 90s, it was little cheap plastic ones for kids. But they, those glasses specifically were even sold at book fairs and everything. Even just that tagline of love never dies. Yep. That's the whole like premise of the movie just yeah. summed up in those three letters of like love never dies. As tragic, as fucked up, as like horrific as it is, like it really is the love crossing the seas of time. Yeah. Even to the last scene between the two of them and that last shot of the stained glass windows finally reunited and assuming they're actually ascending to heaven, which is kind of funny that he gets to go to heaven even after he did all this horrible shit for who knows how long, but it makes the story like well wrapped up. The very ending of that is actually George Lucas's idea. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. In wow. the original book, Harker like slashes him across the neck, Quincy stabs him, and he just bleh, turns into dust and disintegrates, right? And that's it. And everybody's yeah. like, glad we got done with that one. All right, let's go home. And that's that. In the movie, there is an alternate ending where they stake him, essentially. He goes in the church. He and Mina kind of have their exchange, and he dies. And then she gets up, opens the doors. All the dudes are waiting outside. She kind of grabs Harker by the arm, and they just ride off into the sunset, and that's it. End of the movie. I don't like that ending. Coppola being buds with Lucas, you know, I mean, they came up together, knew each other forever. Coppola showed the movie to Lucas, and he was like, hmm you need something a little bit more at the end here. There's got to be some kind of payoff for all of this. So the final last, her decapitating him and then kind of that being like the release for his soul to go to heaven and the final shot of the fresco on the ceiling and all that, that's all Lucas's idea. And that was all stuff that they went back and reshot. And I'm glad it just cuts there. It doesn't go on to show her like walk out of the church, reunite with all the guys. It just watches her look up. You see that. And then credits. That's perfect. Yeah, because ultimately the movie's about the two of them, you know, so it needs to kind of end there, like on that note. It's true. It does kind of end there because he finally gets reunited with Elisabetta, who I guess got to go to heaven when when he did. So now they're both dead and reunited, even though she's a reincarnation of Mina, which I really love that they did that. I love that they- I do too, yeah. Love- aspect to it because part of vampiric folklore one of the reasons why it caught on so big was because people were dying from plagues left and right so wives would just be left widowed and when they thought that people were rising from the dead because you know they dig somebody up and they looked really bloated and they have blood dripping from their mouth so they're like ah vampire but we now know it's because of the decomposing process which is why it happened but back then it gave people hope of reconnecting with their loved ones that have died so it, it's already got this morbid love story attached to it of the love of my life came back from the dead and I'm reunited with him for this one night and then he goes goes back to being dead again. So that aspect of adding that into this overall huge arc love story of reincarnation of being with the one that you love. Such a beautiful tale. And I love that they did. It really is. Because it's perfect. And that's the greatest idea of love of all. People crossing oceans of time just to be together again. 
So I, I love that they yeah. did that. It's so beautiful. And when you give a degree of sympathy, I mean, as far as horror movies go, I do like a good embodiment of evil, like yeah. Michael Myers villain. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I also really enjoy villains that are, are nuanced and sympathetic in some ways. Like the whole idea of I will burn everything down, including cursing God, because I love this person so much. Yeah. yeah. When you think about it, like, I mean, people are faced with it all the time with like tragedies and everything. But most of the time, that's not in our thought when it happens. But I, I mean, when, after I watch this and I was thinking I was there and our listeners are probably get sick of me constantly bringing her up. But like my daughter, right? I've had her now for over a year. I was just thinking, I was like, say if I had this power like Dracula does, would I go this far to like curse myself for this long for her sake if something happened to her? And I was like, yeah, without like hesitation. I was like instantly. Yes, I would. I mean, it's problematic to think about it because I don't want to like do some of the horrible shit he does in this movie, obviously. But like just that idea of I can sympathize with the villain and, and how much he loves this person that he's willing to like yeah. curse God and damn himself for centuries, at least in the beginning when he's chewing up scenery Emperor Palpatine style, you can tell he's been suffering this entire time. Like, yeah, he's Dracula. Yeah, he's the most powerful vampire in the world, but he's obviously not relishing in his power. His only goal is to be reunited with his love, and all of this is just a curse. It's suffering. He's obviously yeah. just... Well, he's become cynical. Yeah. 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 He's become the demon, basically. Yes. Yeah. And one of my favorite scenes, they used an old-time camera right when they first start meeting. They show the newspaper clippings, and then it's the old-timey camera going around the city and then you see Mina walking down the street and then you see him and he just stops and so does the camera it just stops kind of on him yeah yeah see each other it's such a beautiful moment I love that scene yeah it's phenomenal what this is going to be like episode 95 or something I don't think any horror movie we've covered has some of them have had romance and, and tragedy and everything. Yes. But I don't think it's really been done in this way. Like we haven't really had yeah. not, not tragic in kind of romance. Operatic yeah. Yeah. Kind of scale. Yeah. Gothic romance style. Yeah, yeah. We've had movies that definitely like have that as a subplot or a theme for sure. The only other movie I can think of off the top of my head, and it's much less bombastic and operatic than this is we are still here in terms of the parents grieving a dead child. Sure. That level yeah. of grief of a lost loved one is very similar to the level of grief in this. It's just like with this, it's Dracula and it's Francis Ford Coppola, like pulling out all the stops. Otherwise, yeah, no other movie have we done that has a tragic romance of this magnitude, I would say. Yeah. A couple more details before we wrap up. So as far as the cast goes, I don't think we really even need to discuss no. the other things the cast has been in. This is, again, maybe the most prestigious cast we've ever covered, but uh, as far as just some other bits, Gary Oldman apparently never really had a burning desire to play Dracula. This was really just one of those, oh, you have an opportunity early in your career to be the lead of a major, lavish U.S. production directed by Coppola. You know, so that was the draw for him. It wasn't, oh, I get to play one of the greatest villains of all time, you know, it was more just the opportunity than anything. And weirdly enough, Hannibal really seems to be his only other horror credit. Looking through his entire filmography, there's not really anything else that's horror at all. So that was kind of surprising to me because in, in the back of my head, I think, you know, oh, well, he's played so many villains. There's got to be something else horror in there. Nope, there's not. He was just in uh, Hannibal doing his weird Jimmy Stewart impression. Am I coming to see you? Yeah, soon, I hope. But uh, well, first, I need you to pack off the voice. No. 
Yes, I know. The day you, you never thought would arrive has. Other actors who auditioned, basically every dude in Hollywood, <laughs> Andy Garcia, Gabriel Byrne, Armand Asante, <laughs> Antonio Banderas, Viggo Mortensen, Daniel Day-Lewis, Alec Baldwin, Jason Patrick, Aiden Quinn, Nicolas Cage. I'm a vampire! 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 Michael Nori, Dermot Mulroney, Nick Cassavetes, Adrian Pazdar, Hugh Grant, Rupert Everett, Ray Liotta, Michael Keaton. Now you want to get nuts? Come on! Sting, Kyle McLaughlin, Alan Rickman, Colin Firth, and Hart Bachner. Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. Every single one of those dudes auditioned. Please tell me Sting and Kyle McLaughlin came on the same day so they could relive their David Lynch Dune days. Please. <laughs> that would be great, yeah. <laughs> some of those choices, absolutely not. And some of those choices, I could see it. Obviously, like, Nick Cage is about to play Dracula in this Renfield movie that's about to come out. But, like, Nick Cage at the time... You know, I don't know that I could see him in that necessarily. Uh, not in this style, Dracula. Yeah, not this style, Dracula. But then there's ones like Ray Liotta. Karen. Ray Liotta. Karen. Ray Liotta. Karen. 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 Really? Uh, okay, sure. Um, I love Ray Liotta. R.I.P. Ray Liotta. But as Dracula, I, mm, nah. For some weird reason, though, I could totally have seen Antonio Banderas pull it off. <laughs> I don't know why, but I feel like he could have done it. He is in Interview with a Vampire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like, yeah, you can totally see that working. Obviously, Jason Patrick had been in The Lost Boys. Viggo Mortensen, I don't think, played a vampire at any point, but he literally plays the devil in The Prophecy. Gabriel Byrne played the devil, I think, once before. I mean, a lot of these guys had played villain kind of roles before, but, you know, as actual theatrical Dracula. Yeah. Biblical villains. Yeah. yeah. But like as actual theatrical Dracula, I can't can't see very many of these guys so yeah oldman is a very out of the box choice but a choice that works so perfectly especially considering yeah. he has to transform himself so much that's what he's always been known for you know so that absolutely works we really don't need to go through like the filmography of anthony hopkins and reeves no. and and all them but it did kind of remind me of a couple things when i was glimpsing over it not only is winona writer in this movie and obviously in stranger things more recently i always take for granted and forget that she's fucking in beetlejuice bruh i think between beetlejuice heather's and Edward Scissorhands, she maybe was my first actress crush growing up, honestly. Yeah. I think she was a lot of ours was yeah, like our so. first actress. Drew Barrymore was also considered for this role by the studio, which again, I like Drew Barrymore. I don't nah. see her. Winona Ryder. Yeah. You know? But I always forget too that Winona Ryder is an alien resurrection. Yeah. yeah. I love that fucking batshit movie. It's not like the best, but yeah. it certainly is an entertaining movie. For Keanu Reeves, I always forget, and I have a soft spot for this movie. I know it's not good, but The Devil's Advocate, I forget he's in that movie. Yeah. I don't know why I always love that. Constantine movie. kicks ass, man. That's Constantine's one great. Like Keanu yeah. Reeves and a lot of supernatural stuff, and he's great in that movie. Yeah. As far as other people that were considered for Van Helsing, Liam Neeson apparently wanted this role and was pursuing it, and they instead gave it to Hopkins because he had just been in Silence of the Lambs and won an Oscar. So that 
was just totally like what could have been if Liam Neeson ended up jumping in that part. I think Liam Neeson could have pulled it off, but I think Hopkins is the better choice here. Yeah. Juliette Lewis was the original choice from the studio for Lucy, which I can see that in terms of where her profile was at the time. I don't think she would have been right for that character at all. Sadie Frost is very interesting and she's had a very interesting career over the years, but I think she's also like enough of a unfamiliar face, especially to like US audiences that she didn't necessarily have her celebrity overwhelm that role in the same way that Anthony Hopkins overwhelms the role of Van Helsing, you know? Um, At this point, Keanu Reeves is Keanu Reeves more than he is ever going to be Jonathan Harker, you know? Frost never even auditioned she felt she was too similar in appearance to Winona Ryder so she just didn't bother they had trouble filling this role so Coppola actually went after her once he saw her in Dark Obsession and she specifically dyed her hair red just to stand apart from Winona Ryder in the movie which apparently too they didn't get along for whatever reason it's interesting that they have such friendship chemistry and everything because they just didn't get along during filming weird again this I would have never suspected that Yeah. Billy Campbell had just come off of The Rocketeer. Richard E. Grant was kind of popping around that point. He was in a lot of weird stuff like Hudson Hawk and The Player and Age of Innocence. Half this cast ended up being in The Age of Innocence, by the way, the Scorsese movie. This was early in Carrie Elwes' career as well, too, which he's gone on to be in a good bit of horror stuff. We already mentioned Tom Waits. The Three Brides. Monica Bellucci is really the only person who had a career. The other two women, Michaela Berku and Florina Kendrick, were both models, rather, it seems. But Bellucci's been in all kinds of also horror. She was in Brotherhood of the Wolf and Irreversible, Brothers Grimm, Twin Peaks, even. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. had a really crazy career. So, yeah, the cast of this is nuts and easily the most high profile cast we've probably ever covered in any of the movies that we've done. The only movie that I can think of that's probably come close is Sounds of the Lambs, you know, as far as pretty much everybody in the cast is a known person, you know, weird bit of merchandise. So there was a comic book adaptation of this movie, which is weird that it's a comic book adaptation of this movie. That's an adaptation of this book, but it features artwork by Mike Mignola, who did Hellboy. Really? And it's rad as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. It was like four issues. There's a trade of it, but it's like out of print now. So it's a little bit expensive. But yeah, just look up the cover of that when you get a chance. The artwork for that whole thing was rad as hell. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. But yeah, like I mentioned, uh, ultimately this movie was a huge hit. So <laughs> couple of wins. Yeah. yeah. Saved him from bankruptcy. He kept his house. He kept the studio. Apparently later he would visit the gravesite of actual historical Vlad the Impaler and he got down on his knees and thanked him and was just like, yo, thanks a lot, bro. <laughs> I didn't lose my house. He left a VHS copy of his own movie on the grave. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. My final question for the both of you. Like you said, it was nominated for four academies and they were all pretty much art design specifically. Well, art direction was the one thing it didn't win. Howard's End won for yeah. that, but it won makeup, it won costuming, and it won sound editing. And sound editing. Which, well-deserved, I think. I I like that. I forget what else came out in 92, but do you think this not getting more nominations for like best director even or best picture 
is because the horror genre title to it, because we all know how horror has been received historically in the Academy. Yeah. Do you guys think that has anything to do with it? Not getting those kind of prestigious uh, nominations? Not that these aren't, but I feel like with a Francis Ford Coppola Dracula movie that that was this successful, you would think it would get like a best picture nod. Absolutely. When it comes to horror, it it just doesn't really hit the Academy Awards as well as it should sometimes. And this one was very experimental with everything that he did. So I personally see that type of thing as something that should be rewarded because it's so different Mm -hmm. and it tells you know, a very popular story, but it tells it in a different way. Yeah. You know, everybody sort of gravitates towards this movie when they see it. So I I definitely think it could have gotten an award for Best Picture, but... Yeah, a lot of times that just doesn't happen because people don't see it in the artistic sense. It's more just blood and guts. But that can be very creative. Yeah. And you you bring up a good point because like in this day and age where like everything is getting adapted now, most of it being like comic related, but everything is getting adapted now. But not much of it actually really takes any wild swings, Mm -hmm. really takes like a, a super stylized experimental even kind of swing like this movie did like we don't really see this kind of movie not really at all in like major theaters anymore at least not that i know of aaron no not at this kind of level i mean 40 million dollars for a horror movie now is kind of unheard of absolutely yeah to your point elizabeth i feel like we should be rewarding that more and you know granted this is coming from a person who likes the mcu Mm -hmm. is a comic nerd who is very happy that they're finally taken seriously and given good adaptations but i do agree with the argument that we're kind of in a cookie cutter kind of what's being pushed on the mainstream level is all figured it out yeah the whole how do you pull off a superhero movie we're there we figured it out let's move on to kind of the next thing you know i would like for a couple movies like bram stoker's dracula more chances and yes i understand it's a movie making business and like you need to make money and no one really wants to put that level of funding on an experiment but like at the same time it's kind of like why that argument of how stale mainstream movies are now is there and i feel like part of that is that like maybe a part of like what led to that is stuff like this not being more celebrated horror in general maybe even not being more celebrated i always think back on like get out being classified as a comedy and not a horror to get any nominations get the fuck out of here like it's a horror movie (laughs) yeah well a perfect modern example is del toro's at the mountains of madness and the studio just being like no we're not going to commit a hundred million dollars to a rated r horror movie i don't care that jim cameron is gonna produce it and tom cruise is going to produce and star in it no you can't make this movie you know yeah and that's like our best shot right there yeah back to your question too about the awards i think there's two factors one i do think it's the horror thing you know horror has always been overlooked by the academy for the most part you know there's the outliers like okay the exorcist gets some nominations keep in mind just before this movie what but one really big, right? Silence of the Lambs. True. And so I think it was just one of those things where the Academy was like, oh, well, we just gave a horror movie all these nominations, right? So like, oh, we don't have to acknowledge this one, even though it is good. You know, so there is the factor of it already being kind of a ghettoized genre, but also oh, we just gave a horror movie stuff. The other factor I think is Coppola. I mean, at this point, like we said, he was coming off of a slump. He did Godfather 3, and Godfather 3 was nominated for a bunch of awards. 
but I can't recall any that it won. But that movie was definitely seen as a like, oh, you finally gave us this thing we've all been wanting. And it was disappointing. So like, we're just going to kind of like ignore the next thing that you do. Oh, by the way, you made this movie where like you ignored everything that anybody was telling you and you made this movie kind of brazenly well we're going to kind of put you in your place as well and not acknowledge the fact that you kind of bucked the system a little bit to do things your way okay cool we acknowledge you made this movie but we're not really going to like acknowledge it you know so i think there was a little bit of weird resentment toward coppola there as well too because any other year this movie would have been a way bigger awards darling most likely i am looking at what won best picture and it was unforgiven in 92 or in 93 for the 92 year so i mean sure unforgiven's good i really like I unforgiven dracula should have won best picture necessarily but it should have been nominated I think that it would have been nominated for a lot more yeah right no, I'm I'm okay with Unforgiven winning, but Dracula really should have been in there. Yeah, Bauhaus should have been nominated for cinematography, thousand percent. I think this could have been nominated for editing. I think this could have been nominated for score. Coppola certainly should have been nominated for director. Gary Oldman didn't get nominated, which that's kind of wild because he was nominated in lots of other award shows so yeah it's interesting that this movie not only was it financially successful and critically successful at the time it has gone on to like have a very solid reputation in people's minds it's a movie that even to this day you just watched this for the first time and you were like wow where has this movie been for 30 years of my life so it's a movie that stands up through the test of time perfectly and has a very solid reputation and I think has kind of proven that the awards side of things doesn't really matter at the end of the day. You know, yeah. like we know that's always kind of been the truth, right? But like, that's not the arbiter and money, frankly, is not really even the arbiter of like what makes a movie good. You know, yeah. it's all these other things that went into this is why we're now all sitting here talking about this movie literally 30 years later. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts, Elizabeth? This movie's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end on this. Uh, so talk to Dracula. Something I did want to ask you earlier, and I usually ask this of new guests at the top, but we'll ask you right here at the end. Do you have any weird fears or phobias? Ooh, weird fears or phobias. I used to have a fear of being buried alive okay. <laughs> because of a Twilight Zone episode. Ah, okay. Okay. The yeah. Whole vampire thing. So I think that's also what fascinated me about the history of vampires. Thankfully, I don't have that fear anymore because that's not something I really need to worry about. True. That fear yeah. kind of got me even more so into the history of vampires and not just the folklore, but the real history behind it and, you know, how that all integrated into society and everything taboo I love. So, yeah. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, with that, we are Watch Vidair, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, and Aaron, my spooky co-host. Go watch this movie. It's like nothing you've ever seen. It has some scary moments, but it's not too scary for you horror newbies like me. Go watch this. Yeah, go watch it. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming on our show again. For having me. Elizabeth Piper S. Um, you can find her starring in The Dark Offerings, now on Amazon. Again, it was only a dollar for me to rent on Amazon. And you also co-wrote that movie and helped produce it. Also, check out, again, Your Blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a weird way to say that. Check out Elizabeth's stage blood at C-I-N-E blood type O. Cine blood. The Dark Offerings, uh, you can find at The Dark Offerings on Instagram and Twitter. 
And then you can find me at Elizabeth Piper E on Twitter and Elizabeth Piper S on Instagram and TikTok. Awesome. Check out all her content and be on the lookout for future projects. Uh, We will definitely be following you and plugging anything that's coming up and we'd love to have you back soon. And then with that, our socials are at Watch If You Dare on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, We are on pretty much every podcatcher you can think of, Apple, Spotify, etc. Please continue to rate, review us and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser and and Good Pods. There's so many podcatchers I need to remember. Those are the three we've been charting on and having a lot of reviews from so thank you so much for all your support on there you can check out our spotify music playlist at the top of our twitter page for spooky tunes i'm pretty sure i will add the song from the credits in this movie do it onto that list probably pretty soon speaking of music thank you to your little brother jesse mansfield aaron for providing the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode he has a ton of music check him out at party gator on Bandcamp. he is also on opossums big clown and a million other music projects i actually bought an opossums vinyl uh recently so i got it on vinyl now and uh with that do we have anything else we want to say real quick aaron master master you promised me eternal audio but you give it to the pretty podcast sally i'm no lunatic man i'm a host fighting for his soul